Hi, I'm your host, Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast of targeted trainings for child welfare workers, caregivers, and professionals. Today, we have the honor of welcoming back Dr. James Metz and forensic nurse Tracy Wagner from UVM Medical Center's Child Safe Program. And we're going to get them to talk to us about medical child abuse today. Um, And also, we should let you know that because it's COVID times, we're all recording from our own homes, um, not in a fancy studio. So the sound might sound a little bit different. All right, James and Tracy, welcome back. Hi, Cassie. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. For those folks who aren't familiar with your program, Tracy, would you start and just let us know a little bit about the UVM Child Safe Program in general and then about your role there and how your team works? Sure. Um, So we are a specialty program at University of Vermont Medical Center and Children's Hospital, where our specialty is child abuse medicine. And that looks at all types from neglect, physical abuse, sexual assault, medical child abuse, as we'll talk about today. But we are an interdisciplinary team. We work hand in hand with our community partners, work with DCF and schools, nurses, pediatricians' offices to objectively and come up with the best ways to solve issues of child safety and um, promote children's health and safety. And our team consists of Dr. Metz, who he'll introduce himself in a sec, and Mary Ellen Rafus, who some of you may know, who is a social worker with our program. And myself, I'm a forensic nurse. We used to be called sexual assault nurse examiners, but it's, um, the profession has expanded to encompass um, more forms of abuse and violence. Great, thanks. Yeah, when I was a worker, we called your role sane nurses. So it's good to be up to speed on the new terminology. James, would you give us a little intro about um, your background and how you came to be with the clinic? Sure. I grew up in Vermont and then left uh, to go to Seattle to uh, train in pediatrics and then uh, child abuse medicine. Most people probably don't know that there is such a specialty as child abuse medicine, but sure enough, there is. I uh, worked there for a few years and then came back to Vermont to work and continued to develop a child uh, protection program or child safe clinic here at the hospital. And as Tracy said, I work with Tracy and our social worker on this project. So if there is a DCF case of sort of um, significant injury or, or physical abuse or medical child abuse, is it safe to assume that the DCF folks are working with you on that case? with you and your team. Yes, correct. And I I just want to be clear, we are a separate entity from DCF. We work for the University of Vermont. We are not paid by DCF, but we do, because of the nature of our work, we do work closely with them. We come up with our own opinions and we evaluate things from a medical perspective and take those concerns to uh, DCF when they need to be. Uh, But we are separate Uh, entity from DCF. That's helpful. I would say our role is also to kind of synthesize the current research and evidence and be sure that we're practicing child abuse medicine to to the best of our abilities. So just to provide that expertise statewide. Yeah. So thanks for coming in today to help us with a little bit of expertise in this area. You know, we said at the top that we're going to talk about medical child abuse what is medical child abuse? Would one of you be willing to give a definition of what it is and what we maybe have called that historically? Sure. It's a great question, and I appreciate you spending some time uh, talking about it today because it's 
probably not the most common form of child abuse that we think of when we think about child maltreatment. But nonetheless, it is an important and uh, concerning form of child maltreatment. So most of us probably think of it as Munchausen by proxy. Mm. That's what it's been termed for years and years. Uh, but more and more, we're changing that language um, for a lot of reasons uh, to include the term medical child abuse or caregiver fabricated illness or uh, fictitious disorder. And the main reason uh, or the main focus of this is to identify the injury or the harm to the child and not necessarily the motivation of the perpetrator. Okay. So it may be a semantics a little bit, but I think it's very important. When we say medical child abuse, we're focusing on the abuse to the child by medical means. Whereas when we say Munchausen by proxy, that is really a diagnosis of the perpetrator. And just, you know, because I'm a pediatrician and not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, it's harder for me to diagnose the uh, perpetrator with some sort of psychiatric illness. And to be fair, it's probably not the goal for me. My goal and our goal here uh, is to diagnose the child and the harm that's being inflicted on the child. And I, I'm thoughtful about what you just said, so I realize this question might make you pause. But just for edification for our listeners, what is Munchausen's by proxy? Like, what does that look like? Understanding that you're not diagnosing it, it still might be helpful for folks to make sure they have a mental picture of what that is. Sure. The, the Munchausen by proxy is a diagnosis of a caregiver um, and how that manifests itself is in over-medicalization or uh, falsification of a child's condition so as to perpetuate their illness. To what end? Well, I, I think that's the, that is the big question. I think that sometimes it's considered financial for financial reasons. Sometimes it's an uh, underlying psychiatric diagnosis that the, that the parent has. We actually really don't have a great understanding of why caregivers perpetuate or, or perpetrate medical child abuse. There, there are a lot of thoughts and theories on why, why they do this. Uh, but I think, again, our aim is not necessarily to discover or figure out what those motivations are. It's more to focus on the harm that's being done to the child. Okay, and in what ways might that harm present or in what ways does medical child abuse present? I can think of an um, example early on in my career. We had a um, toddler, I think she was about three, who had um, unexplained diarrhea uh, that was causing her to become dehydrated and have terrible skin rashes and needing to be in the hospital. And, um, you know, the medical team did that. We did the usual workup, uh, tracked what she was eating, uh, thinking about allergy testing and everything that we could think of that might cause this diarrhea. All the te medical testing came back negative. Um, and it was a really perplexing case that um, mom was at the bedside and uh, dad was working a lot, so we didn't see him too much. Um, and mom, everybody was very concerned about this little child and the unexplained diarrhea. Um, in the long run, I 
uh, what ended up happening is uh, one of the physicians had asked the three-year-old, you know, did you, did you get anything for breakfast today? And he said that he, his mom gave him some chocolate. And what we ended up finding out with was that, I don't even know if you can buy this uh, over the counter anymore, but X-Lax, a laxative, used to come in chocolate bars uh, form. Oh. And this child was being fed the chocolate bars, and which the ingredients in this chocolate bar would cause a huge diaper rash. And um, it kind of explained the sort of coming and going of the symptoms. Uh, when mom wasn't there or when she was taking a break and going home, the diarrhea kind of slowed down. Or when grandma was taking care of the child, the diarrhea kind of slowed down. So it was really complicated for everybody involved to sort of figure out and distressing for everyone wow. involved as well. And um, I think that you know, I, again, as James said, I don't really know why, but um, it's, it was she was a young mom who was lonely, and I think the being in the hospital was a provided her some safety and comfort. And um, those are, and of course, those are just my speculations. But sure. uh, you know, just when we can't understand what's going on. Wow, that's really powerful. Do you have some other examples of ways that it might present? And if, if you don't, that's okay, because I know they're so complicated, but just to give folks a picture of what we're talking about. Often in the form of diagnostic dilemmas. So that means that when a physician, after extensive testing, including imaging or blood work and all these other tests, still can't find something. And, and by the way, pediatricians and physicians in general are always on the lookout for zebras. And when I say zebras, I mean the rare illness that we learn about in med school. And so we're always thinking that when something is not making sense, we're always thinking, well, maybe it's a zebra. We should just do more testing. And that's just the nature of our profession in some ways. And so it leads us to do more and more. And so we oftentimes in those instances are doing harm to the child unbeknownst to the actual diagnosis. So, you know, we've, we've seen children with um, central lines or these catheters like IVs that are in place uh, for years uh, for unclear reasons or a tube into their stomach called a G-tube so that they can get medicines and eat uh, for unclear reasons. We've seen kids, like Tracy said, with intractable diarrhea uh, for unclear reasons. And we're still, as physicians, we do more and more testing um, because uh, we want to get to the bottom of it. Wow. So is it an accurate assumption that in these cases, the caretakers are bringing these children in for medical care um, regularly and or frequently, that you're seeing these cases and these kiddos and, and having regular contact? So we, our team, the Child Safe Program, doesn't see it until it becomes recognized as a problem. But yes, these children are being seen at their primary care provider's office multiple times. They're be, being seen by different specialists, the cardiologist, the gastroenterologist, the infectious disease physician. Uh, and not just, by the way, in one location. They're often going around the country and beyond to try to get a diagnosis. So in these cases, is it hard to tell the difference uh, before it gets to you? So once it comes to you, I understand there's been, you know, some concern. But um, when it's first starting out, is it hard to tell the difference between a concerned parent and medical child abuse? 
I would definitely say yes. Um, parents are seeking answers to questions, uh, have a heightened sense of awareness that something is wrong. And, you know, I think also typically as, as pediatric a medical team, our first job is to always partner with parents and believe that they're the experts on their children. So we walk into the relationship thinking that we all have a common purpose in mind, and that's the health and the safety of the child. And occasionally, that, that, that when it's not that mutual goal, that's when things get money. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to underscore that that is the heart of the issue is that as pediatricians, the mantra is the parents are always right. Mm. So, you know, when we're not seeing what the parents are seeing, that's a problem and we need to listen to them. And as Tracy said, in certain situations, it's not all that common, but in certain situations, parents aren't telling us the whole truth. And you touched on it a little bit in the beginning, but are there particular patterns that you see um, in perpetrators around this type of child abuse? Or are there particular factors or red flags that might make this more or less likely to be happening? Sure. There's a lot of research going on about medical child abuse, and uh, we've learned a lot about it over the years. There are some clear red flags. For instance, an illness that is only, or only presents itself in the presence of one caregiver, so always with the mother and not when the child goes to the grandparents. Mm. That's a red flag. When the parents or caregiver are reaching out to multiple specialists, uh, that's a concern. Uh, when they fire a lot of uh, physicians, or as we sometimes call it, doctor shopping, um, that can be a concern. Mm. And again, when after a full exploration of a diagnostic workup is complete and the physician gives uh, reassuring news to the parent, but the parent or caregiver continues to disbelieve what the physician says and that reassuring information, that is concerning. I would also add probably that um, when siblings or other family members have a history of unusual or unexplained illnesses, um, that mm. can also be a red flag. We tend to think, um, as James mentioned, uh, the doctor shopping piece, I always want to remind folks that, you know, UVM Children's Hospital has experts. All of our specialty pediatricians are experts in care and have connections nationwide and internationally. And um, it's pretty rare that we can't provide the care here. And that seems to be a common misperception that that specialized care can only occur in other states. Mm. Um, so I, I just often think when, when people are going out of state for uh, care that we're, we're completely competent and able to provide in Vermont, it, it always worries me a bit too. Um, and so I'm so drawn to kind of, th go ahead. Okay. I'm so drawn to theorizing about the why and, and what's going on for the perpetrator in these cases, but does it really matter why the perpetrator is doing it? I mean, not really. I say that but I, I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for the, the caregiver because I, believe, I do truly believe it's an illness uh, and a compulsion uh, and a psychiatric uh, illness that the perpetrator has. And so, you know, while it's not my focus, in order for the safe reunion of the child or the safety of the child, we need to treat 
the individual, who, the perpetrator. And we can only treat that perpetrator if we know more about the reasons that they're doing it. Again, it is important, maybe not so much for the work that we do here at the Child Safe Clinic, but when we talk about a child being removed from the perpetrator and then brought back into the care of that perpetrator, we, we want to be assured that that individual has been rehabilitated or treated for their, their illness. On the, another component of that is sometimes, um, you know, we this is a we have some time constraints around this because these aren't they can be very medically complex situations and that uh, rise to the level of being life threatening, and mm-hmm. and that's it's scary and kids deserve the the quality of life and health and safety in a really timely sensitive manner. So. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering in in all the cases you have seen or in the um, families that come through the clinic, do you see in these types of cases perpetrators getting to the point where they have actual admissions about owning what they've been doing and explaining the whys behind it? In my experience, very rarely. The one case that I mentioned before, we were able to provide some really intense family-based support and wraparound services for this mom that was able to boost her self-esteem and help her feel safe and secure and connected. But it took a really long, long time and uh, required a bit of foster care and, and intensive supports. And so the family-based approach there was really the, the pivotal factor, would you say? Oh, I'm making an assumption. I should ask that. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, are there resources out there for people who want to learn more about this type of child abuse? Uh, for sure. There's lots of good journal articles. Um, there's a, a good book on medical child abuse by Carol Jenny and Tom Rustler. And there's lots of information in the lay press. There's even some Netflix uh, shows on this, uh, some recent big cases of medical child abuse that have come to, to light. And I would just caution the listeners that you may only be hearing one side of the story because the medical field, we are limited in what we can provide information on based on HIPAA and a lot of privacy issues. So when you hear parents talking um, about their child being removed and how all the things that they have done for their child, it's very difficult for the medical field to respond to those claims or those um, uh, respond in any way because we are, we are again bound by, by HIPAA. So, you know, they're compelling, they're interesting stories, uh, but they're often one-sided. And I would just caution you about that. Okay, that's a good caveat. There's an older book by Louisa Lasher and Mary Sheridan, who I believe are social workers. It's called Munchausen by Proxy, but they are experts. And um, there's some really good, like simple teaching in there and that helps kind of helps you wrap your mind around it. One of the classics. (laughs) So for the the workers out there, the DCF folks um, or other professionals, if they suspect that they might be dealing with a medical child abuse case, what should they do? What are their next steps? Great question. Again, it starts with awareness. And so I think that this is, you know, the podcast is a great way to get people aware of it. As with any sort of child maltreatment, um, it's a team effort. And realizing that is, is truly important. So reaching out to colleagues, reaching out to experts, uh, such as the Child Safe Program, and sharing your concerns and saying, hey, uh, is this something that makes sense? Is this something I should be concerned about? And sometimes it's easy to figure out and sometimes it's not. But 
the recognition that, you know, why is this child getting so much care? Why is um, the child going to Indiana for their care and not doing it here? There may be a very reasonable and uh, explainable explanation for it. But if there's not, and if there are more questions raised than answers, then I think it's important to recognize that and to bring it to the attention of your supervisor, uh, bring it to the attention of our program, uh, and don't just let it slip by. And potentially, uh, you know, for the family services folks, it might be a re-report. I'm just going to plant that seed for you to discuss with your team. As we're wrapping up, um, do either of you have any last thoughts that you want people to take away? It sounds like, you know, consult, check in with people. What else uh, is most important for people to know about this topic? I would say that it's complicated. It's not clear cut. And again, we really want to focus on the harm that's being done to the child. And when you think about harm, I would just encourage you to think broadly and not just about the medical aspects of it, but the social aspects of it too. Are children being removed from school unnecessarily? Are they being confined to a wheelchair unnecessarily? Are they being exposed to radiation unnecessarily? So really, it takes a a lot of thought to consider all the different ways that a child is being harmed uh, by medical child abuse. And when we think about it broadly, we really can think about how we can provide safety to that child. And it might not be clear up front what the motivations are. And I would just encourage us not to get hung up on the motivations and, and really kind of focus our attention on the abuse uh, harm that is being done to the child. Yeah, the impact to the child. Mm-hmm. The hallmark of, of medical child abuse is, is deception. That's a real challenge for all of us working with families to be in that place and be present and be objective and thoughtful. So the more we can support each other in this work too is really important in having um, some good supervision and taking time for ourselves and ensuring our own health and wellness is is also really important. Great. Thank you so much for taking time out to chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Cassie. Thanks for listening. If you have any ideas about topics that you want us to cover or episodes that you're interested in hearing, shoot us a message. You can reach me by email at cassie.gillespie at uvm.edu or you can leave us a comment on the webpage where you downloaded this podcast. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. And a special thank you to Brickdrop for composing and recording our music. See you next time.